the Hallelujah A people, huh? <laughs> uh, the uh, yeah, can we have more light here? Uh, let's see. I'm reading tonight from. <laughs> Uh, now, this is a sermon tonight I have preached around the world. <laughs> you can tell because of how tattered the notes are getting. <laughs> and Henry Corey preached this around the world twice before I did. <laughs> the, uh, the jokes are Henry's, the outline's mine. Uh, but uh, turn with me in your Bibles, please. Already they're leaving. <laughs> Have you noticed Wagner always leaves early? <laughs> he used to do that in my classes at seminary, too. <laughs> I'd come up, you know, the final exam period, and there would be Wagner in the front seat, and I'd say, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he'd say, you know, I took this course. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, uh, Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to look this way. <laughs> Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. The, I used to suffer from deep anxiety and guilt feelings uh, when I would preach these sermons over and over again. Uh, that was a long time ago. You're leaving? <laughs> Somebody have a pencil? I just want to take down some names. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have guilt feelings, you know, about preaching these sermons over and over again, but uh, no longer. I just do it anyway. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll just take five minutes and everybody just gets settled. <laughs> okay. Uh, keep the door open. Roger will be back. <laughs> Just before I say amen, you wait. <laughs> the, uh, oh well. Uh, what was the passage you were going to read? <laughs> Luke chapter 15. All right, that's it. Luke 15. Uh, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them, one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we'll read just that far. Let's just have a word of prayer. Lord, open our minds, our hearts, our eyes uh, to see you in your word. Uh, Speak uh, to us that we may speak to others. Remind us again through your word and your spirit of the joy of serving Jesus and of those great numbers of people that Jesus reaches out uh, in love to save. Help us, as did our Lord, to reach out and to give them the word of good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, uh, Last night uh, we talked about uh, the kingdom of God and uh, we sort of tried to remind you in as simple a way as possible that uh, when the New Testament, when the Gospels use the term kingdom of God, it's really sort of another term for Jesus. Uh, So that when Jesus talks about the kingdom coming, in a real sense, he's talking about himself coming. Uh, And in that very sense, we can say the kingdom has come, but the kingdom hasn't come. That is to say, Jesus has come, but Jesus is coming again. Okay, that was theology lesson number one, relatively painless, harmless, and easy to forget. Now, (laughs) uh, we want to go on tonight, (laughs) and uh, uh, what we want to do in the next uh, two or three sessions together is to focus on the kinds of people that this kingdom revolves around. And uh, we're going to do that by taking two or three categories uh, from the New Testament, uh, from the Gospel of Luke, that are particular objects of concern uh, for the writer. And uh, we're going to deal with one of those categories tonight. Tomorrow night uh, we'll deal with uh, the topic of children and the kingdom of God. And then the last night we're going to deal with the kingdom of God and the poor. I always save that one for the last night so that my wife and I can make a quick exit (laughs) while you're all feeling terribly guilty. Uh, (laughs) uh, But we're going to focus on another kind of theme tonight and uh, a theme that's very closely related to this whole idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, We're doing it by particularly concentrating on verse 7. Uh, By the way, just this has nothing to do with a sermon, but it just hit me. I don't think I've ever been struck by this. Uh, uh, This uh, this is an extra added plush you can attach to the morning messages. Oftentimes we're asked, uh, you know, is God male or female? And uh, usually our response is, well, that's obvious. The Lord is male. Uh, And certainly most of the images or categories used to describe the Lord are uh, masculine. He's described with a masculine noun of the masculine gender. Uh, but uh, take a close look with you at Luke chapter 10, and Luke chapter 15, and verses 8 through 10, the parable of the woman looking for the lost coin. Who's the woman who looks for the lost coin? The uh, all right. Uh, don't wince. Think that one through. Uh, we do believe that God is a spirit. Is another one? Don't really. Uh, there are, I think, just simply put, there are instances where images uh, used in the New Testament to describe the Lord are images that ordinarily in our contemporary culture we associate with uh, the feminine side of images of God. This is one of them. Uh, now, imagine, uh, we're not going to spend, uh, that's just extra. <laughs> Get you angry before tomorrow morning comes. Uh, 
the uh, we're focusing on verse 7 of this 15th chapter. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, uh, this is sort of the heart of the uh, parable of the uh, Good Shepherd, and I think most of us know that parable. Uh, the, uh, all of us ought to. It's uh, kind of t- tired, uh, tried, and true. Uh, the, uh, this is the, usually the one that creeps in on the uh, curriculum of the primary Sunday school class uh, the, in the, with the beginners in vacation Bible school. Uh, it's uh, not exact the thrill of it all. It's kind of disappeared. doesn't generally make the adult curriculum. They say Paul, uh, Peter, and Revelation for all that heavy stuff. The, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> the, uh, the first time I ever met George Maladin was on Lookout Mountain in uh, Chattanooga, and George was preaching on the book of Deuteronomy. Do you remember that, George? Ah, uh, Leviticus, that's right. <laughs> Have you finished? I, I see by the smiles George is still preaching on... <laughs> There's a lot of meat in Leviticus. <laughs> It's up to chapter 8 now, right? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> got a real treat in store. Next you're going to go through Deuteronomy. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, those are the kinds of tidbits you say for adult, adult groups, you know. Not uh, little kiddie stories like this about bunnies and furry things. Uh, the... Uh, uh, it's a pretty straightforward story. Uh, here's a shepherd. Uh, he's got probably a medium-sized flock. Uh, it's not a big flock. doesn't seem to have any helpers. Uh, he's on his own. Uh, he can't afford a watchman, maybe. And he's just finished uh, probably the evening count. Uh, he's checking them all out as they go trip-tripping into the little place where they all trip-trip. <laughs> I have deep background in raising sheep, as you can tell. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there they go, uh, 95, uh, 96, uh, 98, uh, 99, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you may worrying about my math. I, uh, <laughs> that's why I was called to the ministry. <laughs> but the, uh, with or without math, suddenly you realize there's only 99 in there, and the story begins, you know. Uh, you've seen these pictures, uh, and uh, I thought that was Roger. Uh, <laughs> you've seen these pictures, you know, of the uh, of the parable of the lost sheep. Have you seen those? Uh, they're usually I find them in Orthodox Presbyterian churches behind doors in basements. <laughs> the uh, you know suddenly you think nothing's there, and you open the door and look, there it is, <laughs> and it's this big cliff. You remember that? And it's terribly dark. And uh, here's this shepherd, and he's hanging on to this little scraggly bush, you know, with a copy of New Horizons clutched between his <laughs> And he's, he's reaching over into this terrific chasm, right? And there's this sheep sort of hanging on by its chin on the ledge. I can't kind of fuzzy on that. And he's reaching down to get it. Well, uh, that ma- makes a nice picture. Uh, but it's really not very accurate. Uh, in the story that our Lord told, you notice that uh, the sheep doesn't go around looking for cliffs off of which to hang. Uh, the, uh, in fact, a Bible scholar who, uh, whose father was a missionary in what is now Israel 
once and has written a very fine, uh, very detailed book on the parables, has commented that, uh, uh, that at least in Israel, uh, sheep don't go around doing that sort of thing. Uh, they just lie down right where they are. And so in the parable, uh, the shepherd comes and he sees the sheep and he picks the sheep up. You know, you don't just say, get along, little doggy, or whatever. <laughs> say, the sheep. The, uh, he picks the sheep up, puts the sheep on his shoulders, and he carries the sheep home. And uh, when he gets home, he holds this big party. The parable ends uh, with the shepherd calling together his friends and his neighbors. That probably, uh, that kind of language implies a party. And uh, as he calls them together, he says, uh, if I can read this, uh, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Uh, uh, back home he goes, holds this great big party, the uh, uh, sort of a, a hundred dollar a plate uh, presidential type breakfast, the, uh, and uh, the guest of honor, <laughs> there he is up on the front, this smelly sheep. Now, the, uh, at this point of the story, uh, preachers who are working or using this uh, passage will now make application. Uh, it's the summertime. This is a great sermon to use shortly before vacation Bible school. Uh, you're uh, desperate for a vacation Bible school teacher. The, uh, uh, you need uh, you know, three teachers to take care of the junior highs. Not teach them, just take care of them. <laughs> and you know, so the call goes out. Sunday school teach, uh, vacation Bible school teachers, come help us find the lost sheep in the junior high department. Please, you know. <laughs> or the, uh, it's also good in the fall at rally day. Uh, you're going to invite the neighborhood out. You've got 40,000 leaflets to distribute within the next 10 minutes. Uh, you know, help us uh, find the little lambs in our neighborhood. The, uh, the problem with all of this approach to this story, uh, in the end, is it seems to me, is that it's very moral-centered instead of being Christ-centered. And I've heard these kinds of sermons over and over again. Uh, this kind of looking, this way of looking at this passage or story ends up pointing at preachers instead of pointing at Jesus. Uh, or Sunday school teachers instead of Jesus. And parables aren't built to do that. Parables are all tied in uh, to the kingdom of God. Most of them, unlike this one, usually begin with a word like the kingdom of God is like unto and then comes the story. This one has skipped the introductory phrase, but uh, it links in to this whole idea of the kingdom. We're learning something about the kingdom in this parable. And more specifically, as we talked about last night, we're learning something about Jesus. Because the parables are sign pointers to Jesus. Uh, having now crossed the United States, my wife and daughter and I are now experts on signs. Uh, uh, which states you can find them in, which states don't believe in them. <laughs> Uh, Wyoming doesn't believe in them. <laughs> the uh, Colorado is growing to like them a little. <laughs> Wyoming doesn't believe in them. Uh, California, walk a half mile. There are 18 of them. <laughs> the uh, Wyoming doesn't believe in them. <laughs> the, uh, and then there's the rest of the world. Well, these parables are all signs. Only they won't help, uh, in a sense, any traveler trying to get across the continent because all the signs read the same thing. The same message on every one of the signs. They all say Jesus this way. Uh, sign pointers to the Lord. Program. Pro, uh, computers. 
programmed to one message, uh, the kingdom of God. The, uh, you can't beat the computer. Uh, God's uh, TV guide to the great new program that God has come to unveil in the world this fall. And the name of the new program is Jesus. Uh, God's birth announcements of the coming of the kingdom in the coming of the king. Now, uh, that's why I think one of the big central pictures in this parable is the picture of, G of the shepherd. Uh, now, uh, shepherds were not just nice ways of talking about Jesus. Uh, uh, and it wasn't, nor was it just Jesus' way of trying to communicate to a lot of shepherds out there in his congregation. Uh, you know, Jesus had spoken to a bunch of truck drivers. Uh, you know, how would he have described this? Uh, the, uh, uh, the mind boggles. <laughs> no, it wasn't just a way of giving sort of local color and getting his people interested in what he was trying to say. Uh, Jesus here is borrowing some ideas or pictures from the Old Testament. Uh, this was an Old Testament way, this uh, idea or picture of the shepherd, an Old Testament way of talking about the Lord, and more specifically of talking about the Messiah. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, um, Jacob speaks uh, verse, uh, verse uh, Genesis 48, verse 15. The God who has been my shepherd uh, all my life to this day. The, uh, uh, don't worry if I miss up some of these verses. Uh, <laughs> I told you these notes came from Henry Corey. <laughs> I was in a congregation once where Henry forgot for, I think, five minutes how many tribes there were. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, of course, I can't remember what country, but... <laughs> uh, David, you remember in Psalm 23, talks about uh, uh, the Lord as my shepherd. Uh, the uh, Isaiah chapter 40 uh, describes God as the shepherd who would carry the lambs in his bosom and he would gently lead those who are with young. And uh, the Old Testament ends with this picture of God as the shepherd sort of transposed onto the Lord's people as under shepherds. Uh, the Lord's people, uh, the leaders of God's people, uh, called to be sort of mere reflections of everything that God was. Uh, the leaders of the children of God uh, were supposed to be shepherds. And uh, the Old Testament ends with uh, the bitter words of the Lord to these shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34. Uh, you eat the fat, begins uh, verse 3, and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Now it seems to me, even without uh, rural experience, this is not a good way for a shepherd to function. <laughs> The, uh, uh, then the verse goes on, those who are sickly, and you'll notice this language strikingly comes at you uh, in the New Testament, those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field. Now, this is God's judgment on the shepherds uh, as the Old Testament prophets speak. Uh, they haven't done their job. They aren't prophets. And so the great message comes at the end of this beautiful chapter, uh, the Lord's promise that he is finally going to send a prophet who will do the job. A prophet unlike all of these false prophets who will uh, bind up the brokenhearted, who will heal the sick, 
who will gather the lost and who will take care of the sheep. And uh, uh, that prophet, that shepherd, will be the Lord himself. Verse 22, 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Now, when's all that going to happen? And, of course, the great message of Jesus' parable is it's now. And Jesus takes all of that rich language of the Old Testament, pours it into this little story, and by doing that, uh, in the most beautifully indirect but forceful way possible, says, that's me. Uh, And he becomes the shepherd at the heart of this beautiful uh, story. Uh, Jesus, once again, pointing to himself as the fulfiller of all these great messages of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm the good shepherd, Jesus is announcing. And notice will you how many times in the New Testament, as I'm sure you've heard many times before, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. Matthew's gospel, he looks out on the multitudes and he has compassion on them. Why? Because they were as sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks of his disciples as what? The little flock. And that's more than just a euphemism. That's Jesus uh, using biblical Old Testament categories to define who the people of God are. Uh, Jesus, the Prince of Shepherds, that language is from Peter's letters. Uh, the uh, John's Gospel, I am the good shepherd that gives my life for the sheep. Uh, the day of the good shepherd, you see. It's not way off, that's the point of all this story. It's right here and right now because Jesus is here. The kingdom has come because the shepherd has come to bring it. See the point? Uh, one of the first graduates of Westminster Seminary uh, uh, was a fellow by the name of Brainerd Lecters. His full name was David Brainerd Lecters. Uh, a couple of years ago, Westminster had its 50th celebration, 50th anniversary, and for the first time in 50 years, uh, Westminster Seminary awarded some honorary degrees. Uh, one of them went to David Brainerd Lecters, and for a very justified reason. David Brainerd's father, Lecters' father, was one of the co-founders of the Wycliffe Bible Translators back in the 1930s. And uh, David Brainerd Lecters graduated from Westminster back in the early 30s, And in those years, the first five uh, translators went out to work in Mexico under Wycliffe. Three of the five were Westminster Seminary graduates. David Brainerd Lecters was one of them. Uh, He went to work in the Yucatan Peninsula uh, to work among the Maya Indians. Uh, It was not an easygoing life. His wife uh, was a graduate of Johns Hopkins University, registered nurse, Elva, the, uh, and uh, put everything that she had into the work uh, of Brainerd Lecters. Uh, their first son came, uh, David, uh, just recently, uh, about 10 years ago, graduated also from Westminster Seminary, and uh, they were at a Presbytery meeting one day in the jungles of the Yucatan. Uh, not far from in the Yucatan, in a place uh, that most of us identify, might be able to identify by one of its big resort towns, Cancun, where the president, our president went this past year, Uh, was a province called the province of Quintana Roo. Now, it was out of that province that just uh, a short decade or so before had swept a revolution uh, of violence and death uh, that had swept over Mexico and frightened the whole country to death. Nobody wandered into Quintana Roo. There were no roads into the province. Uh, the The only industry in the province was where the people who shinnied up the trees and gathered chicle for American chewing gum programs. So the presbytery gathered, and they began to struggle. Now, there were no churches in this entire province. 
And uh, it must have been quite a presbytery meeting. And finally, uh, one of the pastors got up and he said, look, he said, how come we can send people into uh, uh, American businessmen who can go into this province and collect chicle from the trees for chewing gum, and we're too afraid to go in to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, they decide then and there that they will send people in to share the gospel of Jesus Christ into that province. And Brainerd Lectures volunteers to go with his wife, Elva, and their little son, David, Beto. So uh, they prepare for the trip. They get their burro, and uh, Elva sits on the burro, and they have a little uh, uh, thing across the front, uh, uh, what do you call this, the hammock, uh, where, they, where she'll carry uh, Beto under her neck, and they spend two to three weeks cutting through the brush to get to the capital of Quintana Roo. We uh, sleep on the trail at night, arms all cut up with bees and uh, everything else imaginable. After two to three weeks, uh, they hit uh, the capital. Now, the capital is easily distinguishable. It's one block long. <laughs> There's a church at one end of the block, and the other block is a large tavern. <laughs> the, uh, they try to find a place to stay. Nobody in the area will give them a place to stay. The uh, priest in the area has informed the people that the Protestants are coming and that the Protestants will poison all their children. And so uh, they have been told not to give uh, a place to stay uh, for the family that comes. Uh, Brainerd and Elva can't find any place to stay, so uh, they literally rent a pig pen. And they move into a pig pen, uh, clean up the uh, roof a little bit, and settle in. Uh, later they're able to find another place. They'll live in that area for seven years of their life, and when they're done, they will have a translation of the New Testament in the Maya language for the first time. Now, about two or three years ago, you take a group of seminary students down to uh, Quintana Roo, the very area where they went. You'll go to that very street, still there. The church is still there, the tavern's still there. On either side of the church are four other churches, uh, Presbyterian churches planted for the ministry of the power of the Word of God, let loose uh, through his word in the Maya language. One of the largest Presbyterian churches in the world is in Mexico. And over 60% of the Presbyterian church in Mexico is made up of the Maya Indians. And those people came to Christ because of the testimony of Brainerd and Elva Legters. Now that's what happens when the shepherd comes. That was the last time Westminster Seminary ever sent uh, the uh, one of the few times uh, since then that Westminster Seminary has ever sent translators onto the mission field. What are you all doing here? The, uh, another point that's focusing here and that I want to uh, get uh, more particularly before your attention now is this image, uh, equally shocking I think, of the, uh, of the idea of the lost. The picture here is of the shepherd seeking the lost, right? In fact, if you've noticed, uh, here in Luke chapter 15, there are three stories coming one right after another, rather unusual for uh, the Gospel of Luke. And every single one of the stories, without any break in it, all has to do with something that's lost. Did you notice that? Here is the parable, first of all, of the lost sheep. Then that's followed, verses 8 through 10, which we read also, the parable of the lost coin. And then right after that one, comes the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, as uh, 
those of us who belong to the older generation will sometimes uh, 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 call him. Now, uh, uh, that seems to me to say that there's some importance to this concept of something that's lost. Important enough for Jesus to sort of, or for Luke, the gospel writer, to pack three of Jesus' stories, one right after another, to get at this point. And in fact, uh, uh, elsewhere in the Gospels, this same theme hits us in a different way. You remember when Jesus sent out uh, the disciples at the beginning of his Gospel ministry? Matthew chapter 10, I think, says, uh, as he sends them out, he gives them orders. He says, uh, don't go uh, in the way of the Gentiles, and don't go to the Samaritans. But, he says... Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now notice the language there. He doesn't just simply say go to Israel. And he doesn't just simply say go to the sheep of Israel, does he? He says go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there's that idea of something lost again. In fact, later on in this gospel, Jesus will use the term with reference to his very own ministry, criticized by the Pharisees because he eats in the house of Zacchaeus, he uh, responds by, to the criticism by saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And once more, there's the picture, only now used not of Jesus' disciples, not in a parable, but Jesus now using it to describe his own purpose in coming, uh, the very reason he's come uh, for that which was lost. Okay, what on earth does that mean? Uh, most preachers, uh, the, I think, tend to use this term lost as a sort of a general throw it, a throwaway category for everybody that's a sinner. Uh, uh, Billy Graham is constantly talking about things that get lost. Uh, the, you know, we're all lost and undone. And uh, the, uh, the Bible says so. <laughs> He's got a bigger Bible than I do and can wave it, lar- in a, can wave it around more easily. Uh, but most of us, I think, use the category the same way, right? We talk about sinners and we talk about people that are lost. So the term generally comes to mean, for most of us, just one more way to talk about lots and lots of sinners. And we've got plenty of front-page front news uh, to give us sermon illustrations galore to go along with this kind of category. Uh, the only problem with this kind of usage, to my mind, is that it's wrong. <laughs> now, you can't win them all, <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, and it's too bad, but it really is wrong. Uh, I don't think that when the Bible, particularly the Gospels, and by the way, this term is used just about only in the Gospels, as far as I can see, uh, that when the Bible uses it, uh, it does not use it, it's just one more term for sinner. Okay? Now, before I'm taking the pressure off, you see, off me from the morning talks. This gives you a little heresy to think about through the night, too. (laughs) Uh, Let me suggest that Jesus here is using this term kind of a special category. He's thinking of a special group of people. He's borrowing an idea from the very people uh, to whom he's responding. These words are spoken, you remember, uh, the occasion... Uh, those Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling because Jesus is eating with sinners. And in response to this, Jesus prepares this parable about those that are lost. Now, uh, the Pharisees uh, had a very special way of looking at the world. Uh, They divided the world up into many parts. The first and most basic division 
of course, were the Jews and then the rest of the world, uh, the Gentiles, uh, those who had not had the benefit of God's revelation. Now they very quickly, the Pharisees, got rid of the Gentile world. All we have left now is half of the watermelon. But the Pharisees aren't finished yet. The sleeves get rolled up, and once more they take that half of the world and cut it up once more in two pieces. Again, not equal. Uh, one, uh, and uh, of course what they've got left are the Pharisees and then the rest of the Jews. The, uh, now, uh, the term that the Pharisees themselves used to describe the rest of the Jewish world, the non-Pharisee world, was this word, the lost. This was a technical term used by the Pharisees to describe their fellow Jews. Not to describe Gentiles, but to describe their fellow Jews. Their fellow Jews who were not card-carrying separationists. The, uh, uh, their fellow Jews who didn't keep the laws who weren't as scrupulous, who weren't as punctilious, who didn't dot their I's and cross their T's the way any self-respecting Pharisee did. The kind of people who didn't know uh, how to blow their nose in public <laughs> or in private. The, uh, uh, the Pharisees were the Mr. Cleans of the first century. Uh, uh, they uh, talked, about them sometimes, talked about themselves sometimes as a nation within a nation. They were the true people of God, and then there were the rest of the Jews. Uh, there were the, uh, the brand exes, uh, those who uh, you know, couldn't keep the rigid demands that the Pharisees kept creating and building out of the law, uh, the, uh, the kind of people who always washed out of the commercials. Uh, part of that brand ex group uh, was uh, the technical category called publicans and sinners, and you'll find that technical term used in verse 1 of chapter 15. Probably the word sinners, again, is not just a general category for everybody's bad, you know, and likes John Wayne movies. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a special category, and it's probably a euphemism for prostitute. The, uh, and these are the kind of people, you see, who, whose very occupation and livelihood place them in open conflict with the law of God. They were really lost. Uh, they made their living by violating the commandments of the Lord. They were people who didn't belong, prostitutes and tax collectors. The, uh, and uh, it is that category that Jesus now discusses. Now every Pharisee knew that those kind of people were not going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Every Pharisee knew that when the Lord came in his great and mighty kingdom, that was going to be the kind of trash that the Lord was going to sweep out of the door. They were not going to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at that marvelous feast day. They were not going to celebrate uh, with the Lord in glory. Uh, they were, uh, and, they, and certainly the Pharisees were not going to sit at any table with a scraggly-looking bunch of people like that. And that's why they got so upset at what Jesus did. Because Jesus just sort of bursted, burst all those categories. In fact, he didn't just talk about them. His very actions themselves exploded them. Now, they got angry at Jesus. Why? Not because of what he preached in this case. They got angry at Jesus because he actually received people like that, and he sat down with them at the table and he ate with them. And that eating with them told the Pharisees something. I mean, Pharisees didn't eat with prostitutes, and Pharisees didn't eat with thieves. Uh, why should they? They weren't going to eat with them in heaven. 
But Jesus ate with prostitutes, and Jesus ate with thieves, and as he did that, what he was giving them was sort of a word, a deed parable. He was saying to them, look, when you get to the kingdom of heaven, this is the kind of people you're going to sit down with. Why, uh, all of the leftovers of the world are going to get into the kingdom of God before you. Now, usually, at this stage, we sort of, uh, to give you an illustration, I think, of what we're talking about this morning, uh, usually at this stage, uh, we think, isn't that marvelous? You know, think of all those terrible, hypocritical Pharisees. They deserved every word they got. No, they didn't. Uh, they're not uh, the, uh, uh, after the, these, uh, uh, these people that the Pharisees looked at as lost uh, were lost, right? Now tell me, what would a typical OP congregation in Southern California do if you're inundated by a group of about 15 girls from the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles? And then they came clattering in with all the makeup and all the tight clothes and the high heels and everything else, and they sat down there right in the evening service. I mean, I can see the deacons now. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, uh, I can see the pastor, you know, just sort of driveling away. <laughs> the, uh, uh, those people are sinners, right? Don't play games. They're sinners. They are lost. And now Jesus comes along and says, boy, have I got a surprise for you. The, uh, those are the kind of people that are, going to have, that are going to be sitting right next to you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, that shocked those Pharisees. It should have. should shock us too. The, uh, uh, they don't belong. Of course they don't belong. Well, this is ridiculous. You bet your life. Doesn't make any sense. Of course not. You know what we call this? That's why we call it grace. Because it has nothing to do with the categories that we all fit in. That's what makes grace, grace. That's when the Lord breaks all the categories. And he says, uh, you don't have to play around with me. I know exactly what you're like. I've seen your life from start to finish and long even before it started. And uh, I want you in the kingdom. You're going to sit here right at the table next to Moses. And uh, uh, you over there in the corner with all those problems and all those sins, uh, you come on over here, you're going to sit down next to Moses. It's going to be a great table because God's going to build it by grace and by grace alone. And it doesn't have anything to do with sins. It has everything to do with Jesus forgiving those sins and saying, I forgive, I forgive. That's what makes it the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what makes it joyful. Great table. I remember a young man, a Hindu, talking to me uh, uh, some years ago at an InterVarsity conference in Philadelphia. And I had been talking about grace to a group of international students uh, at a, a conference run by InterVarsity and Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, this Hindu student came up to me after the message was done. And he said, yes, he said, very, it was very strong. He almost ran up to me. And he said, uh, he said that's exactly the problem with the United States of America. <laughs> and uh, I said, could you give me a little background, please? And he said, uh, he said, it's that kind of teaching. He said, that's why when we as Hindus come to the United States of America, we're appalled by the immorality of you Americans. Alcoholism, uh, debauchery, uh, you can't stay together as families. I see the whole American culture breaking down. And uh, boy, I said, well, I said, you're sure right there. He said, but you don't see the reason for it. And I said, well, what, what do you think the reason is? He says, this Christian doctrine of grace 
See, in Hinduism, we don't have anything like that. In Hinduism, you get what you are paid with what you get. Uh, the, uh, if you live a life of sin, there will be judgment from the gods for each and every one of those sins. And you will pay for it and pay for it and pay for it until finally your debt is paid and then you transmigrate into another life. And uh, it's like that. You're on the wheel of karma. And you continue to pay and continue to pay until finally there are no more debts to pay and then there's nothing else. And he said, that's why you Christians, uh, uh, you Amer Christian cultures can't seem to live without sin because you believe in grace. <laughs> well, we had a good talk. <laughs> it opened all kinds of doors and all kinds of opportunities to share. And I could say once more, yes, uh, you, you see these sins very properly. Uh, but for you don't, you will not, you should, will not, or should not see them according to the Bible in the life of a Christian uh, whose life has been taken over by Jesus Christ, possessed by the Spirit. Uh, because grace, you see, uh, calls us to live a life of grace and mercy and obedience to the law of God. And that's what makes it different. Grace is grace. The. Uh, one of the uh, exciting things, I think, about this parable uh, is this great theme of Jesus calling the lost and looking for the world's leftovers. One of the things that deeply concerns me, I guess, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and in the world we face today is the tremendous number of lost people that we don't seem to see around us. Uh, one of the great themes that is being developed in missions today is the idea of the unreached people. Uh, here in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area, that has been a major theme of Dr. Ralph Winter at the U.S. Center for World Missions, and I heartily commend the U.S. Center to any church that wants to support it. The, uh, uh, Ralph Winter looks at the world, and he sees the world not composed of 221 nations, with most of them having a missionary or two in them or a church planted, but he sees the world divided up into over 16,000 people groups. Uh, in fact, that number may easily be twice as many, three times, four times as many. It's just the beginning of a figure. And he sees all of these people groups. And uh, then he sees something else. He sees uh, these people groups as groups in whom there is no viable or visible Christian presence. Now that, what that means is, over 16,000 people, cultural groups, whatever we want to call them, in the world today where there's no visible, clear-cut Christian testimony. And uh, he says, who's going to give it to them? Well, there are no, uh, can, the, uh, can those peoples uh, count on Christians among them? No, they can't. Why not? Very often because they aren't there. There are people groups without clear-cut Christian testimony. Some of these people groups have no churches. Uh, a number of years ago, we took a group of seven seminary students to northern India. Uh, we were visiting for three days a Hindu temple uh, where we had an opportunity to witness to the uh, priests there. And I remember very visibly, uh, very uh, to this day, uh, it, the, you're, you're just deeply impressed by the awesomeness of it all. Everywhere you turn in that temple, there are gods and spirits, and you're just, it's, the atmosphere is really depressing. And I sat with a Christian pastor who was accompanying us, and I asked him, we were in, by the way, one of the four holy cities of the Hindu faith. 
And I said, where's the nearest Christian congregation? And he looked at me and he said, there's one 500 miles away. Now that was the nearest Christian congregation. With an area of 500 square miles, one Christian congregation. Now that's an unreached people. A people often Christians can't see, but they're there. You live in Southern California in the center of one of the largest unreached peoples in the United States, the entertainment world. And they are unreached people. And you don't see them. You watch them on the screens, but we don't see them. They are the people who very frequently are transforming our human culture. And very we don't like to see our children go to some of those kinds of things. And yet they're unreached people, and they desperately need Jesus Christ. How are you going to break into that uh, unreached people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? You've got to do some hard thinking. That's your mission field. You're in Southern California. That's uh, got to be at least one of the centers of your attention. Uh, we're Orthodox Presbyterians. We believe in a world and life view, right? Practice it, brothers and sisters. Practice it. The uh, unreached peoples. Uh, every time I come to an Orthodox Presbyterian family Bible conference like this, I have a great time. I have a great time at this one. I go away with, uh, with one question. Where are the black Orthodox Presbyterians? And I ask that question here. Uh, we live in the inner city of Philadelphia. About 80% or more of our neighbors are black. The, uh, and I ask myself in the city, where are the Orthodox Presbyterian churches from the black communities of the United States? Why don't we have them? We're not a racist church. Of course not. We just don't have any blacks. The, uh, they're unreached people. Uh, what are we doing to tool up our churches? I think one of the most exciting things I have heard here so far, one of the most exciting, just, boy, I'm so anxious to share it back east, is the news about what's going on at Beverly Church. I think that's just great. I would like to see about eight or nine more groups like that start out of Beverly. The... Uh, and, uh, and Beverly Church become sort of a little Noah's Ark the, uh, with signs hanging over the side in Spanish, uh, Korean, uh, Japanese, uh, Yugoslavian, the, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and even, I'll even allow a little honky. <laughs> the, uh, but those are unreached people. We've got to reach them. And there are unreached people. And those are the lost. The people that very often you can't see because they don't fit our categories, because they don't quite come within our cultural purview, uh, because they don't quite fit our obstacles. Uh, liberalism. Uh, liberals. They're unreached people. Uh, now, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has developed an attitude toward liberals. <laughs> now, they're obviously not going to get into the kingdom, right? And so we've developed our attitudes already. I'm not speaking against separation from liberalism. I think that's biblical. I'm speaking against separation from liberals. That's unbiblical. The, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a friend, I have been influenced in the last few years through the writings of a fellow by the name of Richard Shaw. He is uh, an extremely radical theologian. He teaches, uh, used to teach at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's professor of what they call ecumenics there. Uh, about uh, 15 years ago now, he was deported from Brazil because of where he had worked as a missionary for over 10 years because of his very strong uh, advocacy of violent revolution in Brazil. <laughs> and then he went to Princeton to teach missions. <laughs> he, 
teaching all those fellows how to put Jesus saves on the bombs. And uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, well, about two or three weeks ago, I have appreciated, strangely enough, his writings because he's challenged me or made me rethink in a lot of very tough areas. Uh, then about three weeks ago, I found that he lives four blocks from where we do in the inner city in Philadelphia. And I said, bye, George, it's time to evangelize Richard Shaw. <laughs> he has walked right into our mission field. So I got a friend at Westminster Seminary who's a missionary in Ecuador because I haven't been there. I need somebody who's been there to help build the rapport. And we called up Richard Shaw. <laughs> and who is this? Uh, my name's Harvey Kahn. I teach West missions at Westminster Seminary. Westminster what? <laughs> Westminster Seminary. You mean, yes. <laughs> Just wondering if you could come on over and chat a bit. You want to come over and chat a bit? <laughs> you know, just talk and say hello. Just talk and say hello. You're from where? <laughs> so, this past Monday, we went over to talk a little bit. Had a great time. Sat down, had an orange juice, some peanuts in the living room. And he said, is this a social call? <laughs> and I said, sure, we just want to get to know you. We live only four blocks away, and that's not right for Christians who have concerns about many of the same things to live so far off. And he looked at me and a big smile on his face. And then he swore. <laughs> and he says, well, blankety blank, this is a great day. <laughs> and uh, we sat down in the living room and talked for an hour. And in a couple of weeks, we'll probably go out and talk for a couple more. The, uh, now, I put Richard Shaw on my prayer list. I'm praying for Richard Shaw. Uh, I believe Richard Shaw needs to hear the gospel of sovereign grace. I'm not going to write him off. And there are a lot of Richard Shaws like that. Don't write him off. Uh, pastors, uh, reach on over. Uh, elders and deacons, uh, you've got uh, people in your neighborhoods and you know that are like that. People whose theological points of view you think got mangled somewhere in a tired out old ironing uh, machine. Uh, don't leave them in the ironing machine. You reach on over. Uh, uh, God's big enough to save even liberals. The, uh, you reach on over. But you do it with friendship. And you do it with love. And you don't say, I'll give them 45 minutes and then I'm all through. No siree. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the past, I think, has been guilty of doing that. Don't make that mistake again. You're a new generation. Don't go writing off as impossible to reach anybody as long as you believe in the sovereign grace of God. The, uh, and I think the result of all this, of course, is this great theme of the rejoicing of the Father. Uh, the heart of this parable, am I getting an echo? <laughs> the heart of this parable is not the intimate bond between the, is not the, intimate bond between the shepherd and the flock. Uh, you have to go to John's Gospel to find that. The heart of this, I think, is uh, this idea, this theme of the joy of the Father. There's joy in heaven. Uh, heaven was a Hebrew way of talking about God. Uh, it was, uh, uh, the Hebrew, as you remember, was, uh, was so respectful of the name of the Lord that often he would give a substitute for it to try and avoid even pronouncing the name of the Lord. So, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son, you remember the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. What he means is, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. But instead of talking, just coming right out and saying, I've sinned against God, 
He says, I've sinned against heaven. He means the same thing. So when Jesus says there's joy in heaven, he means God is happy. He's talking about the good pleasure of the Father. Now we're Presbyterians and we've heard about the good pleasure of the Father all the way back from before the foundation of the earth. I mean, that's a lot of good pleasure, right? <laughs> the, uh, all those Presbyterians, I've never seen anybody as sour-faced about good pleasure like that in my, all my days. <laughs> the, uh, 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 our family, since moving to the city, uh, has in the last year or so worshipped in a great many black churches. Uh, we have enjoyed teaching in an institution for the training of black pastors, the Center for Urban Theological Studies, CUTS, which some of you may be praying for. And uh, that has brought us into some great rich privileges. Uh, worshiping in the Church of God in Christ. Uh, the uh, three-hour worship service, complete with tambourines, drums, organs, and all the singing and testimonies you want. Great time. Oh, boy. Talk. And then you have to go back to the boring old people. Well, <laughs> the, uh, uh, one of the greatest treats we had was a few weeks ago when I worshiped in a charismatic Reformed Baptist congregation in Long Island, the, uh, that uh, I break a few, uh, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> uh, that uses the Trinity hymnal. <laughs> and so help me, I heard that, and I wanted to, uh, oh, I wish I could got that on tape. That was the most, that was tremendous. They play it with snare drums. They have a bass drum, two cornets, and a trombone and an organ. You hear the Trinity hymnal that way. That is wild. Oh, worship the king is an experience. <laughs> powerful stuff. Just powerful stuff. I had a ball. <laughs> the, uh, but, boy, oh boy, you know, you go into all of that, and the thing that hits you is, oh, the joy of the Lord. How the people are excited by worship. And worship becomes then uh, just a joyful expression. When you live in a black neighborhood, and you know the agony that your kids go through. In our neighborhood, 18% unemployment among black uh, teenagers. In our neighborhood, uh, uh, you know, two, three houses on every block with, wa with uh, water that has to be turned off because uh, they can't get at it. Uh, three weeks, four weeks ago, uh, a young woman murdered on her way to a night job just half a block from our house. Uh, a drug bust, so we've got it all. And that's a natural part of living in the black experience. And then you go to worship service. And you hear the testimonies of God's people. And you hear them singing the song that we sang tonight. You know, we've come together to worship the Lord. And oh boy, that is really something. They have sing that one for about 15 minutes. 15 minutes of uh, celebration. Or you go to Uganda. And uh, you'll visit the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Kampala. <laughs> Someday I hope you do that. The, uh, and uh, you'll be there for the three-hour service with, with the drums. Now, when they have drums about this high in Uganda, <laughs> I mean, not these little bitty things that you bang around on street corners at Christmas. We have drums. <laughs> Both ends, you know. <laughs> the uh, powerful worship service. Uh, uh, dancing before the Lord. I mean, all this in an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> the, uh, uh, just a mighty celebration of everything that God is and everything that God has done for his people that's joy in heaven uh, the, uh, sometimes I think you have to look awful hard to see Presbyterian smile you know. <laughs> it does come but look quickly you know. <laughs> the, uh, 
but not here. Uh, I'm pushing this, pressing this as hard as I can, and I think I'm doing it legitimately. Because the joy that Jesus is describing here in heaven is not restrained, quiet, Presbyterian-type joy. Uh, it is raucous, uh, belly laugh kind of joy. Now, where do I get that? All right, take a look at this parable again, right? Here's the shepherd. What has he found? One sheep. One sheep. I mean, he could write this thing off on the IRS, right? I mean, this could go under miscellaneous. I mean, one sheep. I mean, I could get upset over 99 sheep, right? Even though I don't like sheep. <laughs> 99, that's a problem. No, no, it's one, just one. So what's he do? You know, he goes through all this agony, so all those people can draw all those little pictures behind doors in Sunday school classrooms, you know. Blood all over the mountains. I've read the Trinity Bible. <laughs> the, uh, and he gets that sheep back, and what is he calls all his friends and neighbors together. Now remember, this is a party. All his friends and neighbors grief. You know, here's the whole block all pouring in, you know. Come on in, we're having a big celebration. Found my sheep, you know. <laughs> How, many, how much money would he have poured into a party like that? All because he found a sheep. I mean, it's way out of line, right? Of course. That's how much joy there is in heaven. It's all out of line. All out of sync. Because it's all by grace. Here's a, here's a woman. And she drops her coin. Uh, was it a dowry uh, coin? Was it worth something? Oh boy, all the commentators disagree. Uh, probably not a lot of value except sentimental. She loses the coin, then says Jesus. She searches the house diligently until she finds it. And that language is very strong language in the Bible. I right, get the picture here. Here's, here's Reverend Poundstone. <laughs> All right, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. He's off for the course. I mean, no. <laughs> the, uh, and just as he drives out the driveway, Mrs. Poundstone loses 50 cents. <laughs> I mean, you know what Reverend Poundstone's like. <laughs> and so what, what happens? Why, Mrs. Poundstone goes through that house from top to bottom. The uh, tears out the wall-to-wall -wall carpets. <laughs> I've never been to their house. <laughs> the, uh, the air conditioning, the pictures off the walls, you know, moves, shoves all those huge sofas all by herself out onto the front grass. Then the dining room, everything. You know, and about five o'clock at night, Reverend Poundstone drives in again, you know. He can't get the car in the driveway. <laughs> There's a sofa, you know, the double bed, the, uh, all the carpets draped over the rose bushes. The, uh, the place looks like it had been shot at and not missed. <laughs> now, in my neighborhood, if that had happened, you'd call the police. <laughs> the, uh, uh, and he's just standing there in, to in this in total chaos. And out rushes Mrs. Poundstone with this great big smile, wonderful smile on her face, you know, waving this 50 cents in the air and saying to him as she comes up, I found it, I found it. <laughs> Wait till Bill right here. Look. <laughs> and, uh, and there's Reverend Poundstone, you know, in the middle of all this chaos. And Mrs. Poundstone so exuberant because she's found the 50 cents, you know. And there he is standing in the middle of all this thinking now, uh, what was the name of that doctor? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, does it? Of course not. Not supposed to. That's how much joy there is in heaven. Over one sinner who repents. Uh, sometimes uh, 
I have suffered in the past from culture shock in reverse. You're a missionary for 12 years in Korea. You see a lot of great things. You go to Uganda, you see a lot of wonderful things. India, Mexico, uh, other places, you see the Lord's good grace. And then you come home and you get, get kind of tired. Uh, a friend of mine once said uh, he thought it would be great teaching in seminary if you just didn't have all the seminary students. <laughs> the, uh, I suspect there's more than one preacher, an elder and deacon in this group, who said, boy, the church would be great if it just weren't for all those Christians. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you can get awfully tired. Monday mornings are especially bad. <laughs> the, uh, you can get down. You remember all the bickering, all the struggles you've gone through as a congregation, maybe the struggles you're going through right now as a congregation, and you're wondering, is it all worth it anyway? All those years of pain and agony, all those years of struggle, 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 and suddenly uh, denomination X opens up uh, its na uh, a neighborhood church across the street, wham, out they pour. <laughs> the, uh, or you remember all that time you spent on that one new convert, uh, the hours and hours and hours with him, and then he walked on down the street to that church. <laughs> the, uh, and you're wondering, is it really worth it after all? Oh, yes, it is. It really is. When you get down, when you get really bad, and when you think it's all over with, take a look at Luke 15 again. And remember, there's joy in heaven. Uh, I'm almost 50 now, and we've been a Christian boy, oh boy. I was joined the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, March 12, 1950. The uh, long time, 32 years. Boy, look at that little progress. <laughs> and yet, the older I get, I guess, I find my. When I remember when I got out of seminary, I had, you know, I carried my theology in large bags and trunks. <laughs> I needed several trunks. Uh, I'm traveling lighter now. The bags get easier and the. They're becoming sort of overnight case type size. Uh, I hope the theology is as strong and as good, but it boils down more quickly now. The older you get, uh, the sweeter the sound becomes, and maybe a lot of it boils down to this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's joy in heaven because God Almighty wants the lost in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's good because Jesus has brought us in. Some of us he's dragged in, uh, kicking and screaming, objecting all the way, but we're here. And some of us have come in quietly and naturally, as easy as a breeze uh, uh, pushing against a paper in the wind. And that's good too. Some of us have come in with struggle, some of us have come in still with questions. But we're here, Lord, and we're here by your grace. Marvel of marvels. And we look forward to that marvelous day in heaven when we'll hear the laughter of the Son of God as he looks over our lives and he says, Yes, I forgive your sins. Uh, enter into the joy of the Lord. What a marvelous thing to expect not only to hear the joy of the Lord, but to enter into it. And all this because of grace for us.